Thank you so much, Derek, for that wonderful song. Take your Bible, Psalm 51. That's where we are today. Congratulations also to the Dolonartes. They had a baby on Monday. Michael Bryan Dolonarte, seven pounds, 21 inches long. And he's here somewhere today, which is incredible. I don't know if you've seen that little baby in the hallway, but that's... I don't know if they're calling him Michael or Brian. I haven't gotten the note on that, but I'm assuming Michael. Psalm 51 today. Psalm, take your Bible, Psalm 51. You know, when we sin, there are two competing and contrary emotions or feelings. They strike at the same time. There's a desire to cover our sin. There's also a desire to reveal our sin or to confess our sin. We've all felt the desire to cover our sin uh, from a very early age. One of our girls, we were potty training her, and she, um, you know, when, when you potty train a kid, sometimes you have these risks you take, right? I mean, they wear the underwear. I'm sorry. I know this isn't exactly dignified conversation to start, a certain, but I'm going somewhere. Just bear with me. Sometimes you just go with it. You wear the underwear and you say, you're going to have an accident or two, but you just, you know, you got, you got to try, you got to try it. You know, you got to do what you can. And so I was responsible for this little one and um, she was playing on our outside. We have a little sunroom connected to our downstairs and she was playing out there with her little baby dolls. And I checked on her, I said, how you doing? She said, good, good. And then I went inside and then I came back out and there was a puddle underneath her. And I said, young lady, I said, why did you go? You went potty on the floor. Why did you do that? You know better than that. And I kind of cor- corrected her. And I said, what are you doing? And she looked at me, and she looked at her baby dolls, and she said, it's the baby dolls. The baby dolls. <laughs> I said, excuse me? <laughs> no, no, no. You're not getting away with that one. We come up all kinds of ways. We try to cover our sin, cover our our sin. Now, I don't know if that was sin necessarily, but she definitely sinned when she lied to me to try to cover up what she had done. There is this conflict, this conflict we have in our hearts. I think sometimes, though, there's the other side. People, I mean, I've talked to people who just want to get some off their chest. They, they, want, to, they want to apologize to people, even people you, you haven't wronged. They want to clear the air. They want to confess when they've done something wrong. There's even this um, uh, thing called deathbed confessions, when people on their deathbed all confess to all kinds of things they did in their life because they feel the weight of the guilt on their life, things they've never told anybody their whole life. And they're, they're 90-something, and they're talking about something they did when they were 22, 23. They're, they're, in a much more modern context, we see people give uh, apologies or even public apologies online for things that they've done. Right? They go online and they give these public apologies. And I think this reflects what's going on in our hearts. Sin and guilt are a real problem because sin obstructs our relationship with other people and it, it destroys our relationship with God. Because we are sinners, we have a broken relationship with God, a relationship that needs to be restored. Friends, we are not born in a good relationship with God. We, we, we need to be reconciled to God. Our sin has separated us from God. Sin is a a big deal, and the secular world does not know how to deal with guilt. Because uh, unsaved people, they they feel, they understand guilt because everyone is sin, but they don't know how to deal with it. They feel guilty even when sin is private and no one else notices. How do you deal with that guilt? 
when it's a private sin that doesn't affect anyone else? How should you? Should you just, the world might tell you to bury your guilty feelings because it's not affecting anybody. Just bury it. It's, it's a lie, they might say to you. Don't worry about it. Pretend like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But, but God has given us guilt, and God has given us these feelings and these emotions to point us to truth. And, and my question is, what purpose could guilt possibly have? If you don't believe in God, why, be, why feel guilty? There's no God to confess to. But God has given us, in His Word, the Bible, He's given us an example in Psalm 51. There's an example of how specific God-directed confession of sin relieves this guilt and restores our relationship to God. This, this passage is an intensely devotional passage. And this topic today, and this, and this, as we work through God's Word today, I hope you open your hearts to what God is doing, because I'm, I'm convinced the more I, I work with people and the more I pastor that a lot of people have unconfessed sin in their life. People do not deal with guilt and sin properly. They may have forgotten about it. They may have pushed it aside. They may not want to talk about it. But God calls us to be a people of confession. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for His grace as we deal with this difficult passage this morning, and I hope that you're ready to ask God what he would have you do as a result. Father, we ask you today, open up our hearts. Let us be honest before you. You already know the answers. You already know the deepest, darkest secrets of our hearts, things that no one else knows. You know intimately. You know all of it. And Lord, you are there waiting for us to confess the sin. You have made yourself available. You come to us with outstretched arms. And I pray, God, that we would today confess our sin because you are faithful and just. You will forgive, you will cleanse, you have made these promises. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can come with boldness before the throne of grace, knowing that you will find, we will find you a God loving and ready to forgive. Thank you, God, for this time we have together. May we reflect on your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. If we look at Psalm 51, we'll notice this psalm is about sin specifically against God. It is also about sin against people. Look at this superscript there. Above your text, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. If you're familiar with the story, David had committed sin. He had seen Bathsheba bathing outside of his walls of his uh, of his. Um, place of residence there, his his kingdom, his castle, whatever. And he calls her, and he goes into her. He goes, has sexual relations with her, impregnates her, finds out that she is impregnated, and then tries to get her husband to come home from battle so that he can cover his sin. When her husband will not go home to his wife, he then murders her husband, Uriah the Hittite, by proxy. He sends a letter to the front lines telling them to get Uriah in the front danger and, and pull back by thereby killing him. David has hidden this for a year, almost, when Nathan the prophet confronts him. And when Nathan the prophet confronts him, after, I should say after several months of hiding this sin, David confesses to the sin. And this psalm is David's penitent psalm, his, his lament psalm of confession. And confession is important. Confession is an important part of worship. I don't think we often think of it this way. We think of confession as private. We think of worship as public. But actually, worship is incredibly private. I mean, incredibly public. Look at what he says here about this confession. He says to the chief musician, this is a letter. This is a psalm. This is a, 
a, a work that, that, that uh, David gives to be sung publicly. He gives it to the chief musician. This is not held privately just for him. This is about worship because God knows our sin. What is the point of confession? I believe that confession is submission of my will to God's will. To confess is to agree with God, <clears throat> that you will now go by his terms. You will address your offenses against him with the seriousness he desires. And confession is ownership of your sin. It's not shifting the blame. Confession is essential to worship because worship is about a proper view of God. You view God the right way. You worship right. And when you have a proper view of God, we see our own sinfulness for what it is. So what does this worship of confession involve? You'll find the outline inside your bulletin. Maybe it'll be helpful for you to follow along as you read in Psalm 51. First, we see worship and confession involves a prayer for mercy and cleansing. I think it's important that David begins his psalm with an immediate cry for mercy and cleansing. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't mince words. He leans into his need And he bases this on the character of God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to your multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He first asks for mercy. Show mercy and compassion and favor upon me. This is a call to show compassion. He's pleading with God, release me from impending doom. Your hand of judgment is over me. Release me from that. Do not let your judgment come upon me. Have mercy upon me, O God. If you look at the scripture, this phrase, have mercy, is connected also with the story of Joseph. This exact phrase is used when Joseph's brothers, you remember the story of Joseph, his brothers had thrown him into a pit, and then later on in their life, they're reflecting on this moment, and they threw him in the pit, and then they sold him, remember, to these uh, people who were traveling by. And As they are talking amongst each other, remembering Joseph's cries in the pit, they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. We saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and he would would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. This verse saying, have mercy upon me, O God, is the same idea as this pleading, please release me, please remove me, please save me from this impending disaster, this impending Doom. He does this, notice, according to his loving kindness. Different translations translate this word different ways. There's the word mercies. There's the word covenant love. This word is chesed. It's a Hebrew word that has to do with the promise of God with someone else, a covenant promise. According to the covenant promise you made with me, Lord, show mercy, show mercy to me, to me. and according to your compassions, toward me. Notice that he says, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, according to the compassions, the plurals, the plural here, compassions, the bowels actually is the literal of your, your mercy. There's a truth here that we cannot out God's mercy. Some people, some people think that they have sinned too much, that they can never be forgiven by God. I've talked to a man one time who came to me after a Sunday school class I taught, and he said to me, isn't it true that once you sin so much, that God just will never forgive you again? Friends, you cannot out the mercy of God. Amen. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. You cannot out the mercy of God. You can send yourself into some very bad places, but God's mercy is always greater. Amen. You can come to God as a murderer 
and as an adulterer, and you can receive the forgiveness of God like David did. You cannot outsin God's mercy. Sin cannot abound beyond the scope of God's grace. His mercies are there to blot out our sin. Notice that verse, blot out my transgression, to remove any sign of the sin, take away this sin. God's forgiveness is full. God's forgiveness is complete. God does not forgive part way. God fully forgives. There was a plea for mercy according to the character of God. He noticed he bases this in God's character. He says, God, because you're a good care, you're a good God. You have loving kindness. You have mercy towards me. Please have mercy upon me. Secondly, there's a cry for cleansing. Mercy and cleansing. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is a cleansing from personal sin. Look at the words that have to do with cleansing in this passage. Wash me, cleanse me, blot out. When faced with the reality of his sin, David is comforted by the possibility of cleansing, and he knows he is filthy in need of cleansing. Have you ever come to that point in your life where you recognize the filthiness of your sin and you face the filthiness of your sin? We know what it feels like to feel dirty, to feel unclean. How can we be cleansed from this guilt? He says that God promises to forgive us and to cleanse us. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin. Sin has a staining effect on those who engage in the sin. We, in sin. Sin has a staining effect on you. We see this throughout the scripture. In fact, Eric just read First John, or he had us quote First John 1, 9. I have it on the screen behind us. It says, if we confess our sins, if we come to God with confession, and this is talking about the daily confession of believers. This is a book written to believers. It's not talking about uh, sin in the general. It's talking about sins specifically. Notice the plural there, confess our sins. God, he is faithful and just. That means he will always do it, and he has right to do it. To do what? To forgive us our sins, he'll forgive you your sins, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God promises to cleanse you. Listen to this. Other people you will offend, and you will need to ask their forgiveness, and other people can forgive you. No one else can cleanse you except God. God is the one who does the cleaning and the cleansing. He removes the staining effect of sin. Yes, when you sin against someone else, you ask them to forgive you, and they forgive you, and your relationship can be restored. But only God can cleanse because only Jesus died to pay for your sins. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. The stain comes from your iniquity. This is another thing I want to make a big point about. The stain does not come from someone else's iniquity. Someone else's sin cannot stain you. It's your sin. You might feel dirty. You might feel guilty for other people's sin. We are not uh, perfect in our consciences. Sometimes we take on guilt that isn't ours. Sometimes people, when someone else has sinned against you, you feel guilty for that sin that someone else did. You need to recognize you can't confess sin that's not yours. God promises to cleanse you for the sin that you've committed, and you need to recognize that cleansing comes from God. How is God right to forgive and to cleanse? How can God do this? How is God righteous and just to do this? Well, if you keep reading in 1 John 1, verses 2, or 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, as the song was being sung before I came up, he says, Jesus is my advocate and my friend. He is my go-between. He is my lawyer arguing on my behalf. He stands before God and makes the case for me. He's my advocate. Jesus Christ, he is perfectly righteous, and he himself is 
the payment, is the propitiation for my sins, that Jesus died for me and for my sins so I can go to God and confess these sins because they've been paid for by Jesus on the cross. I have no need to worry about God taking out His wrath on me because Jesus has paid for these sins, and He has paid not only for mine, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus, the perfect advocate, the perfect propitiation, but it's not enough just to pray for general mercy and cleansing. Secondly, you'll notice confession involves an admission of specific sin. (coughs) Specific sin. Forgiveness comes to those who confess sin. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Notice verse 3, there's an acknowledgement of sin. You must acknowledge the sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Confession means to recognize and acknowledge the offense, no longer hiding it, no longer blaming it on others, no longer denying the transgression happened. There's an ownership of the sin. To confess means to own up to it. You're not trying to deny anything anymore. The root knowledge, the rootness, sorry, the root word to acknowledge is the root word of knowing. I am making known. I am knowing my sin. There's an ever-presentness to this. He, and you know this feeling when you've sinned and you have not yet confessed. He says, my sin is always before me. I can't get it off of my mind. I cannot rid myself. I cannot find forgiveness and absolution outside of God. I, I, and then he says, it is, it is no longer behind me. It is before me. It must be brought forward so I can confess. We must acknowledge the sin. And sometimes people have swept things under the rug. That's our, that's our terminology we use in English, right? We say, we swept it under the rug. What's the problem with sweeping stuff under the rug? <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> you just can't see it. In the Hebrew, they'd say, I put it behind me. I did, and then he says, I bring it before my face. And this is the picture here that some of us have swept things under the rug. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to discuss it. There are things we don't talk about in our family. There are things we don't, we don't discuss because they offend, you know, or whatever. You have sinned against your spouse. You just stopped talking about it and just went away. It didn't go away. You swept it under the rug. You put it behind you. He says, my sin is always before me. To confess is to admit specific sin. David had for several months put that sin behind him, but now it was brought before him. Acknowledge the sin. Submit to the divine standard. Notice verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Sin against anyone is ultimately sin against God the Creator. Now, he acknowledges that he has sinned against God and done evil in the sight of God. He's not saying that he hasn't done wrong against anybody else. He's not saying, well, I didn't really sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. I just sinned against... That's not what he's saying. He's saying, ultimately, Lord, when I sinned against those people, I sinned against you. This is more serious than just sinning against a person. This is sinning against our Creator, our God. God, I've sinned against you. Confession is... You acknowledge God has the right and the authority to rule in my life. That I don't get to decide what's true and false. I don't get to decide what's important and unimportant. I don't get to decide what's sin and not sin. God has established that in His Word, and I must confess when I have crossed His line. I am not God. He is. Confession asserts that the justice of God, the righteousness and the blameless of God, you see the second part of that verse, you may be found just when you speak, blameless when you judge. When I confess, I'm saying, yes, Lord, I'm wrong, you're right. Yes, I admit, 
I sinned. I broke your law. Your law doesn't need to change. I need to change. We have it all backwards in our culture today, don't we? We say, well, the t- you know, I don't like this test, so change the test. I don't like the speed limit, so change the speed limit. I don't like this law, so change this. So change it. It's like I want to assert my will over the law of God. Well, God didn't know what he was talking about when he said this, is what we might say. Rather than submitting ourselves in confession to God and recognizing that, that his law, we have violated his law, we pretend like God has violated our law. These sins confirm that he is a righteous and just God. These, these, these confession acknowledges his sin, that we have a divine standard, God's standard, and we must submit and commit to an internal solution to an internal problem. You notice these verses here. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth, <coughs> excuse me, in the inward parts, in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. In verse 5, he says, There is a weakness and a sinfulness of men, that we are imperfect beings. We are conceived in sin. When we are born, we are brought forth in iniquity. We are holy sinful people. Despite what this world tells you, and I, I love these new babies that have come into the church. It's just amazing. New life, and to see these beautiful babies. But parents, I hate to tell you, your children are sinners. And if you haven't discovered that yet, you will discover it when they blame the baby doll. <laughs> because, because it happens. We have all sin, and every child that is born is born a sinner. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as an Adam all dies, so in Christ all shall be made alive. We are all born in Adam. We are all born sinners. In Romans 5, therefore, just as through one, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. All men will sin because all are sinners. This does not excuse our sin. It explains our sin. Why is it that you can have the perfect environment, the perfect upbringing, the perfect supplies and everything? They have everything they need, and they turn out to be sinners. It amazes me. There, a few years ago, there, was, there, was this, there were some um, wealthy Hollywood people who were going and shoplifting in stores. Why? You, you, have, you could buy it. You could probably buy the store. But they go in and, they, and they, they commit sin. They steal because it gets them a thrill. And they're sinners. They have what they need. They don't need that, but they steal anyway. We are a sinful people. We have a heart problem. And the internal solution, look at verse 6, is that God desires truth in the inward man, in our inward parts, the secrecy of our mind. God should want us to know wisdom. In the hidden parts, you will make me to know wisdom, he says. The problem is an internal problem, so the solution must be an internal solution. We're not just about fixing behavior on the outside. It goes to the very core of who we are as people. There's a, there's a famous Jewish man who was recently, uh, very famous in, in conservative circles, who was speaking recently, and he was going on, get this, to defend pornography, because he says it does not actually, you're not acting out adultery, it's just in your mind. Friend, God cares what happens in your mind. It's not just about what happens with your life, with your body, outside of your mind. God wants truth in the inward man. It's an internal problem, and it must be dealt with in an internal way. Confession for the sin. David cries out for God to bring hope through this discouraged soul. He asks for restoration, number three. A request for restoration. 
It's the cry of the human heart. It is be restored to a place of peace. He wants restoration from the effects of sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Notice the changed position here, verses 7 and 8. My sin has caused a huge problem. It has left me dirty. It has left me sorrowful. It has left me broken. It has left me disconnected from the Lord. The request is, Lord, restore me, change my position, make me clean instead of dirty. Make me joyful instead of sad. Make me healed instead of broken. It says these bones are the bones that God has broken. God's righteousness and his justice means he who disciplines us, he who breaks our bones, will heal us and set our bones. Restoration of fellowship. Our face, he says, your face is not hidden from me. It's my sins you have blotted out. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. This is a universal symbol of shame. Hiding your face. Everyone knows that feeling when you're embarrassed and you immediately cover your face. Here he says, hide your face not from me, but from my sins. I want you to put aside my sins, Lord, blot out my iniquities. Verse 9 is the same word as blot out my transgressions in verse 1. Restore me from the effects of my sin and renew me to a state prior to my sin in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Look at verse 10. He says, create in me. That word create, bara, is the same word that begins our Bible. In the beginning, God created. God creates And God creates in us a clean heart. Create in me a clean, new heart according to God. I can't do this, Lord. I'm at a loss. I cannot fix myself. I need you to give me a clean, pure, right heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew this steadfast spirit in me. Renew it. Restore it what I had been before. This firm, steadfast ruach or breath or spirit. My words, may they be right. Then he says in verse 11, Do not cast me away. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This is an interesting uh, part that I want to point out because this cry that David has has scared a lot of believers in New Testament times. This is a threat. They think that God would remove his Holy Spirit, but you know, this threat that God would remove his Holy Spirit is not something that New Testament believers ever have to worry about. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came selectively and purposefully to fill specific believers to do specific things. The indwelling presence of the Spirit was not across every single believer for all people. That wasn't until the New Testament times post-Pentecost. And what you find here is that if you have been saved, the Bible tells us if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and He has redeemed you once for all, then we will not We cannot be cast away from the presence of God because we are in Jesus Christ presented before the Father. You have security in Christ. But in the Old Testament, because the Spirit did not fully indwell all believers at all times, the Holy Holy Spirit was strategically, temporarily filling people for his own purposes. Sometimes people who were good, like David, and sometimes people who were not so good, like Balaam and Saul 
Even Samson was filled with the Spirit to do his feats. So the, the prophecies in the Old Testament about the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh was for all future New Testament believers. You look at Joel 2, you'll find examples of that. There's a tremendous book I could recommend you later if you're curious and following this up. But when he says these things, I want you to know that in the New Testament, the reality is different than in the Old Testament believers. That something has changed when Jesus came and he left and he let the Spirit come among all believers. Something changed. We have the Spirit access to all believers and dwelling all believers, all who call upon the name of the Lord, have the Spirit of God living in them. We see this in in, in passages like Romans 8. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ living in your life, you don't belong to God. Further, in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, He has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In the New Testament, we are called the temple of God, the place where God is and where God's Holy Spirit dwells. He will not leave you. God's Spirit will not leave you. He will not be. We cannot be cast away from His presence. The Holy Spirit will not be taken away from us as New Testament believers, but some of us as New Testament believers have lost the joy of our salvation. He does ask for that. If you go to the next verse, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, verse 12, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Unconfessed sin causes the subjective joy we used to have at the moment of our salvation disappear into thin air. Only confession And repentance will restore this. Notice that this was a previous joy, the joy of my salvation. The salvation has not been lost. It's still there. The joy of the salvation has been lost. This is a request. God, bring back the refreshment and reminder. Bring it back to my heart because sin squeezes out the joy of our salvation. But confession and forgiveness restore this joy to its rightful place. Lastly, as we look at this last section, number four, a vow of praise. He ends with worship and praise. We first have a vow of personal praise. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall flow or shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight and burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Look at verse 13. He says, I have confessed, and I will lead others along the same path of truth, so these sinners will be turned and converted to God. They will be changed. Then if you keep going in verse 14, he says, Save me, deliver me from the blood shed, and I will sing aloud. I will praise you and praise your, praise your righteousness, not my righteousness. It has become abundantly clear, he says, that I am not righteous. So I will praise your righteousness. Verse 15, I will open my mouth and praise you. My lips shall show forth your praise. Look at verse 16. What kind of offering does God want? He says, I acknowledge that what you want, God, from me more than anything I could give as a public offering is my personal offering of humility and confession. Do you see this? Look at the verses. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a humbled person, a person who gives up his pride and comes to God with confession. That's a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, an inner man that sees his sin and stops making excuses for it. That is confession. What does God promise when we confess to him? 
Sometimes the reason we, we worry about being broken or being contrite is that we worry what people will think about us. If I confess that, then they will think poorly of me. But look at what the Scripture says. These, O God, you will not what? Despise. God will not look down on these broken and contrite hearts. God promises He will not despise the offerings that we bring to Him. But rather than the animal offerings, we burn our ambitions, we burn our pride on the altar. This is what is talked about in Romans 12.1 when He says, you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Confess sin, being broken before God. This is all linked together with true worship. Notice the words worship there wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or act of worship. Confession is part of worship. Genuine, heartfelt honesty and openness before God must be regular in our religious experience. Let's keep going. He says there's a vow of personal, private praise, and then public praise. I think only when personal worship and confession has been handled properly can public worship commence. This, what we're doing now, is worthless if your private life is a disaster. If you, have, if you have unconfessed sin and you are not walking with God, what we're doing here is worthless. Look for eight, verse 18. He says, Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. There's a request. Lord, bless Jerusalem. Build her walls, there's a personal sacrifice that comes from those who've given themselves fully to God, that they are, they are wanting to build for Jerusalem, build up, but these walls, these buildings are good for nothing if the hearts of the worshipers are not where they should be. What good is a building if the people are far from God? There are buildings all over this country, all over this world that used to have churches of people who love the Lord, and these churches are gone, and the buildings are worthless because the people stopped trusting the Lord, they stopped confessing their sin, and a priority of worship that honors God must be upheld. He says, then you will be pleased. He's not saying there, then I will be pleased. It's a priority of worshiping God. I want to sacrifice to you, Lord, the sacrifice of righteousness. Sacrifice with those who have a contrite and broken spirit cannot be that you must be serving God with a broken and contrite spirit. You cannot come with pride. If you don't have a contrite spirit, it's not a righteous offering. First, or lastly, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings are that which is fully consumed in worship. I think that's a picture of what we ought to be with God. We are to be fully consumed in how we worship. Burnt offerings is a picture of that which goes up, right? Burnt offerings. We are to be on, people talk about being on fire for God. This is what they're often referring to, being completely consumed by the Lord, fully submitted to Him. Then verse 19, then, finally at last, the people will offer bulls on the offering that belong to God. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifice of the righteous, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then they shall offer bulls. Only then will they participate in this. A couple questions as we close the service today. First, have you been sweeping sin under the rug and refusing to deal with what God has brought to your mind? Because sin flourishes in the dark, and God's desire is to expose sin to the light so you can confess it and forsake it. 
Secondly, when was the last time you had a contrite heart before God? When was the last time you were broken before God over your sin? Or has it been a long time since you've opened your heart to the Lord and said, Lord, forgive me for my sin? Have you lost the joy of your salvation due to unrepentant sin in your life? I'm convinced that many Christians have. When Christians are bitter and angry and sour, when Christians are angry at everything, when they don't have the joy of the Lord as their strength, they've lost connection with the joy of their salvation. It doesn't mean their salvation is gone. It just means the joy of that salvation is gone. I believe that all Christians should practice confession as a biblical part of worship. Biblical confession is part of worship. God-directed confession is worship because you're acknowledging who God is. These, these worship and confession are linked. I hope I've made that clear today that you cannot worship publicly unless you are personally and privately confessing sin to God. Confession is always submission to God's standards and God's perspective on my sin. Friends, there's a lot of hope with confession. When we come to God who is ready to forgive, He is full of mercy full of compassions, ready to forgive. When we come to Him, we bear our heart before the Lord. He is there with a tender mercies and tender compassions. We're going to sing in a moment a hymn that sings, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. May Christ be seen in me. We'll sing that song, and I want you to pray that song back to God because some of us need to deal with the sin that's in our heart. I know I love all of you. I know a lot of you, and I, I, I don't want to assume, I'm not saying this, and I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to, to manipulate you or anything like that, but I know, I know as we deal with people that there are people who struggle with things they don't like to tell other people about. There are walls that people build. There are, there are pe- things that people haven't mentioned, and, they, and some people need to go home today and, and confess some sin to their spouse. They need to go home today and confess some sin to their kids. They need to go home today and confess some sin to their Lord. They need to go home today and make things right. And I want you to, when we're singing that song, I need you to really commit yourself and think, Lord, help me follow through on this. Commit yourself to following through, to going to that person who you've sinned against, asking them to forgive you, then going to God and getting some time alone. Maybe this afternoon, do it soon and go to God and say, Lord, maybe read this psalm as a confession to God and, and, and speak your heart to God. God is is waiting with open arms for those who've been disconnected from him because of their lack of confession. God wants you to come to him and confess. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask now as we are burdened by the weight of our sin, but thankful for the the wonder of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for giving us the way forward through Jesus. That we do not have to go to a priest a man to ask confess, to confess our sins, that you have opened the door wide because of Jesus. You have opened the door to direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our advocate and our friend, and Lord, we are so thankful that you've made this possible. My heart is burdened for those who have not yet trusted you as Savior, who are still relying on their own works to go to heaven, who are thinking that they can be good enough to stand before you, or Lord, I pray that they would recognize their sin has separated them from a holy and righteous God. But for those, Lord, who are Christians who have
believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been saved from their sin, who have peace with God, but there is unconfessed sin in their life. Father, I pray that today would be a day of confession, that we would be a renewed church, that we would go before you and bring our sin before you, the sin you paid for, and we would confess it and own it and be restored and renewed and cleansed and refreshed so that we can have a good and right relationship with you and a good and right relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in the church. Lord, I pray that we would be stirred up now to love and good works, that you would provoke us to do what we ought to do, and let us not